Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering this morning in this place. Uh, We rejoice in you. Uh, We rejoice in the promises that you have given to us through Jesus our Lord. We are grateful that this world is not our permanent home. Uh, But as long as we're here, we want to live as grateful people, joyful people, loving people in your world. It's a blessing to live. Uh, But we also know, Lord, that you are on the other side of death. And so, in a sense, we can say it's also a blessing to die and to be with you. And so, Lord, we thank you for Rick Tober. Uh, We thank you for the life that he lived. We thank you for the faith uh, that you gave to him and that he held on to as you held on to him all the way to the end. Uh, We pray, God, that on Tuesday, as people gather in that place, I'm sure there will be lots who are there who have no knowledge of you and maybe only saw it from a distance in Rick. And we just ask, Lord, that you would do a good work in the hearts of those who come, that they might understand that there will come a day when they too will pass from this life into the next. And um, it's a good time to think about eternity. And it's also a good time to be encouraged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, please bless that, uh, that gathering on Tuesday. And please bless this gathering today as we come before your word in the book of Amos. Help me, Lord, to preach it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you're going to turn to a specific place in this book, turn to chapter 9. We will eventually get there, but that'll be the place where we'll land at the very end, verses 11 to 15. In 1989, about the time that I was becoming aware of popular radio music and MTV videos and VH1, I'm sure some of you all probably remember those days too, Uh, Aaron Neville and Linda Ronstadt. Now those are names that are a blast from the past, right? Who remembers Aaron Neville? Had a very particular voice, did he not? Um, and I can, you can probably hear him even in your mind right now if you, if you think hard enough. In a moment, if you haven't, you will. Uh, because they sang a popular duet at that time. And it was called, I Don't Know Much, But I Know I Love You. Gosh, Dan, you were the only one. <laughs> you know, yeah. Let me listen to some of the words uh, that were in that song. So many questions still left unanswered. So much I've never broken through. And here's the chorus that maybe will jog some of your all's memories. I don't know much, but I know I love you. And that may be all I need to know. I just have to confess that like Neville and Ronstadt, I often feel that way when I read some of the pages of Scripture. And probably nowhere else as much as when I come to a book of prophecy. So many questions still left unanswered. So much I've never broken through. I don't know much, but God, I know you love me. And that may be all I really need to know. And as I've looked at these first few minor prophets, Hosea, and then last week Joel, and now Amos, that's where my thoughts have been as I've read through many of the things that these men say. Because I don't know who all these nations were and what their conditions were, let's say, 2,800 years ago when 
Amos wrote this prophecy. I can't visualize what their civilizations even looked like or what their homes would have looked like, their farmland, or what a day's work would have entailed, the food that they put on their tables. Last week, I made mention of the high places that the Israelites built for their demon gods. All over the land, they made these things. But up to this point, I have not read any ancient descriptions of what those even looked like. And when they speak about the future in prophecy, I am often uncertain about where on the historical timeline all of this is supposed to be. It's all hazy. So I can say I don't know much, but I do know that God has chosen to communicate the things that he does want us to know. And in the book of Amos, there are some things that the Lord makes clear to us, thankfully. So here are some things that I can say that I do know, several truths. And the first one is this, that the Lord sees everything on earth with perfect clarity. He sees everything on earth with perfect clarity. Because here in the beginning of this prophecy, Amos comes before these people first in the town of Bethel, and he eventually makes his way up to the northern kingdom, and he tells them about all the sins of the nations around them. So God sees everything going on on the earth with perfect clarity, even though at times it may feel like he does not. He does. We receive news, do we not, through filters. And hopefully at this point we all kind of understand that. We receive news through the biases of individuals. You all know that if you watch a story on CNN, that it's going to be presented differently there than if you watch it on Fox News. And for those who think that PBS is the only unbiased network out there, you need to understand that it is controlled by the government and it's just one of their propaganda machines. And so we do not live in a day where you can watch the news and just get the data. That doesn't happen. And if you know of a place where you really think that happens, tell me, because I, I have looked and I have often been disappointed, okay? So you might think you have a place, but chances are it still has a lot of bias in it. Facts are slippery things nowadays. And so we get the news or the facts like a jury gets information from a lawyer. He has an agenda and it's always going to be a little bit skewed. But thankfully, the Lord does not see facts as we do. There's nothing slippery with him. Nothing is skewed from his own perspective. He gets nothing secondhand. His thoughts are not, are not bent or shaped by biased reporting. He's not fooled by sleight of hand. Nothing is done in darkness before him or hidden from his sight. He sees and knows everything. Absolutely everything. And he's always paying attention. And every evil deed that is committed in this world is going to require that an account be given to him. Somebody will answer for it. And so much of the first six chapters of the book of Amos are spent with him communicating to people in Israel this very truth. Does God see, does he really see the evil of the nations around you? Does he? Amos says, yes, he does. 
But does it look like he does not see all of those things? We can say, yes, it does look like that. Because we don't see the judgment fall upon the people when they commit their evil. At least we don't think that we do. So it looks as if those who do evil prosper by it, doesn't it? It looks like they get away with it, that nobody makes them pay, which encourages more people to do evil and prosper by it even, even more. Until it gets to the point where evil becomes the standard of living and nobody calls it evil anymore. That is a sad state of affairs. But God tells us here that he does see it all. And this should encourage us. You live in the same world that I do. I think that you also get frustrated at times like I do as we see the news. And we need to be reminded in God's word that the Lord is not fooled by the same things that we can be fooled by. He sees it all with perfect clarity. People who love holiness... Now, we cannot but grieve over outbreaks of sin and injustice and war and death, but God sees it all. And in his own time and in his own way, he will do what is right. That leads to something else that I know. God has the only standard that really matters. And we need to hear that. Amos lists the sins of the nations in his day. Lists them. And, and these are sins that surely those nations, if they could give an account for themselves, or if you stood before them and asked them why exactly they were doing the things they were doing, surely they would have given you reason for why it was okay that they did the sins that they did. Probably underneath that is that they had power and believed that they could do everything that they wanted to do. But in the end, the only standard that mattered in that day was the standard that was set by God who made and owns and runs everything in the universe. His is the only mind that really matters. The same could be said of the nations in our day. I read this week that the Chinese have been hacking certain American infrastructures for five years. Well, that's the first I've heard of it. I didn't know that was going on. Nobody asked me. I'm sure the Chinese don't think there's anything really wrong with what they've done. Just a little bit of gamesmanship between nations. But it doesn't really matter what they think. Russia has probably convinced themselves that they're doing right by taking back old territory over there in Ukraine. But it doesn't really matter what the Russians think. The Palestinians think they have every right to attack the Jews in Israel. And the Jews in Israel seem to think that anything is fair game in snuffing out their enemies. And there's been plenty of atrocity to go around on each side of that that they would try and justify in some way. But in the end, it doesn't really matter what each one of these sides thinks about it. 
because the only one that matters is the standard given by God. What about the United States? We're apt to think, are we not, that our nation always stands on the side of justice, that America is out there on the world stage always leading the cause for what is right, and that they're always playing, our leaders are always playing by the rules of righteousness. Our leaders like to present things that way to us, but America doesn't always operate according to God's will. In fact, probably very rarely operate according to God's will. Our money might say, in God we trust, but does anybody actually believe that? Thankfully, the church trusts in the Lord, but can't say the same thing about our nation as a whole. And so this country that we live in will not be any different than any other nation on that last day. It will be on the dust heap of history, receiving the judgment that it deserves along with all the other nations around us. And what about us individually? I know you've got opinions. From some of you, I've heard them. I know you possess them. You've got thoughts. You're in the know, right? Look at your social media feed and it would at least appear that way. But you're only really in the know if you get your standard from the Lord. Because he is the plumb line of all things true and false. And if you are not in line with him, your opinion is worthless. Like dust in the wind. Amos serves up a reminder here of this truth. And it would serve us all well if all these centuries later to run all of our opinions, all of our thoughts, all of our concerns, all of our lifestyle choices, political leanings through this grid. Now this year in a, an election time, right, when everything gets all stirred up and people get hot and bothered over everything that is said out there in the public square, we need to make sure that all of our thoughts are in line with his because only his ultimately will matter. My hope is that we as a church will not clamor for the world's well done. So many people often do that, do they not? They want to make sure that everybody else out there approves of what they say, and so they say things that only other people will approve of and give them applause for. But in the end, whose applause do we really want? We want the Lord's applause. We long, do we not? To hear those words that we see in the Gospels, well done, good and faithful servant. So his applause is the only one that matters. His approval is the only one that matters. And ultimately, it is his standard that is the only one that matters. So let's, as a church, seek to live for the standard of God. One more thing that I know from the book of Amos before I tell you something that I don't know from the book of Amos. God delights to use nobodies to be his somebodies. 
If you know anything about this book, then you know that Amos really was a nobody. He tells us in chapter 7 that he isn't a prophet or the son of a prophet. I think it was my dad or somebody used to say something like that. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. You've probably heard that said a time or two as well. And that comes from here in the book of Amos. And he confesses that to those people that he prophesies to, that I'm not really a prophet. What was Amos? Amos tells us that he was a tender of the sheep. He was a shepherd. And he was also somebody who went out and harvested sycamore figs, which were the lowliest of the figs. So it seems that Amos was a poor man, a poor farmer, poor tender of sheep, and yet it was him that God chose to go and send a prophecy, his word, to the northern kingdoms and to tell them these words that they were not going to hear, hard words. He plucked Amos up and sent him on a journey to speak on his behalf. And so here he was, this common blue-collared worker, just doing his thing down there in Judah when God told him that he had a job to do. And here in Amos, I do think that there is an encouragement for us this morning. We are a room full of nobodies. Look around. And if you're here long enough, you understand that that is the truth. We're a room full of nobodies, and I hope that doesn't make you feel bad, and if it does, I, well, you know, let's just let the chips fall where they may, because <laughs> that's what we are. Are there any major influencers here in the room this morning? Well, Caleb, God bless you. I'm sure you've got your 10 Twitter followers out there somewhere. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, and if you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you would see that this is the way that it has always been. God uses and saves nobodies. That's what he does here with Amos, and he is still in the saving of nobody business today. Just look around. And so in God's scheme of things, we should be willing to say that it is good to be a nobody. So if you pay attention to the ways of God in Scripture, you will often see this theme repeated. God often chooses the younger, the lesser, the weaker, the unexpected to do mighty things for the kingdom. Just think in your mind for a, min for a minute of various biblical stories. Who did God use? Jacob was the younger and weaker brother. Moses was poor in speech. Rahab was the prostitute. Ruth was a foreigner. David was the youngest of eight brothers. And an afterthought, the disciples were all common men. Paul says that he was the greatest sinner. And our Lord Jesus was perceived to be an illegitimate child born to peasant parents in a barn. And he was God's son sent to save the world. And so often we think to ourselves, at least I've heard it repeated a few times, that if only some famous people would get saved, then Christianity would turn the tide. Oh, if God would only save the, the rich and the famous and all the YouTube influencers, and then the gospel would spread like wildfire. But there is nothing in Scripture that tells us that this has ever 
ever been a top-down movement. God's great things flow through nobodies. They always have, and I think we can assume that they always will. God likes it that way. And he gets the glory that way. When great things come to nobodies and great things come through nobodies. Because it can only be explained that God showed up. And that's the way that it worked here with Amos. And I have to imagine that if anything great ever comes from the gospel or the work of the ministry or this church in South Buffalo, that nobody's going to come into this place and say, man, they had such a thriving television ministry or radio ministry, and it was going around the world. It will probably be what they call kind of like a grassroots movement. How did this thing happen? And the only thing that we will be able to say is that, I don't know. God did something. He showed up and began to save souls and do a mighty work because we aren't strong. We aren't weak. We don't possess tons of resources, but we do possess the greatest resource of all, and it is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's pray for great things to be done by the nobodies who were here. So I don't know much. But I do know those three things because God makes them clear here in the book of Amos. But I want to share something with you that I don't know. But first, I'm going to read those last verses of the book that I asked you to turn to and give some context. This is from chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Read with me. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord your God. God, we thank you for these words that are here. You're always pointing us forward to great things in the future, and we look forward to those things. And we thank you, Lord, for the inbreaking of these things that come into time from time to time, here and now. We see things like this happen in our midst in history, and we ask God that we, this people, in this generation, and in this day, and in this place, would see something of this here, just once. In my own lifetime, I want to see something like this. And I ask it in Jesus' name, who is able and for his glory's sake, not for ours. Amen. Just a little bit of context here that Israel has sinned greatly. And God promises, and he tells them he's going to judge their sins. But he also tells them that at some point down the road, he will reverse their course and he will bless them in a mighty way. These promises fall into the category of what is called eschatology. 
That's what theologians like to call the study of last things, how the world will end. And there is a lot that is in the Bible about the end, but there's also a lot of disagreement about the Bible, about what verses like these mean. And as your pastor, I confess there are some things that I know, because I, but there are many things about prophecy that I don't want to say that I do know, because I can see the tension in Scripture between varying viewpoints. And so I hesitate to say that I know some things like this for certain. Now, I lean in a direction, but I think it's wise to be particularly cautious and gracious with texts like these. And so when we look at the words in verses um, 11 through 15, it's hard to know if the blessing promised here has already been fulfilled at some point in Israel's history over the last 2,500 years, which seems the least likely thing to be the truth, or that Israel will actually be in their physical land someday when these words are fulfilled before or after the return of Jesus in a golden age that we call the millennium, or if these words are to be interpreted spiritually and that the land is actually heaven and Israel is all of God's people with him in that supernatural world in the presence of God when these words are fulfilled. And so I don't know the answer to that with certainty. But no matter what, I do know one final thing. And it is that God has remarkable events planned in the future for his people that no eyes have seen before. And what Amos tells us in these verses is truly remarkable and miraculous indeed. And he uses helpful illustrations for us to see how miraculous these events actually will be. And what he says here is quoted in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 15 as the apostles gather together at the Jerusalem council. James quotes these verses here as he hears the words of Peter and Paul and Barnabas as they come and give confession about what they have seen among the Gentiles. These people who were once far off from the promises of God have now been brought near. And James quotes this, these verses from Amos chapter 9. And what that tells us is that the fulfillment of these words is at least in part already coming about as people like you and me who were once outside those promises of God, have been brought into his family. That's how the apostles saw it. When they read their Old Testament and saw these verses, they say, when the Gentiles are being gathered into God's barn as children in his family, these verses are actually starting to come true. Amos tells us of these miracles in agricultural language. He says that during these final days, there will be seasons when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. And if you know anything about farming, you understand that this does not happen. It doesn't happen. 
Everything has its season. Sowing, growing, reaping, treading. It all takes lots of time, does it not? That's just part of the principles of being a farmer. You put the seed in the ground and it takes quite some time for it to grow up before it is finally harvested. And then when that harvest comes in, what happens? Then it becomes winter and everything lies fallow for a time on the ground, cold, nothing's growing until you wait for things to warm up and then you begin to sow again. But according to Amos, things here in this particular day will begin to move with increased speed. I have a quote in the hallway that says this about what it means to be a Christian and really what should be the normal expectation of the believer. This is from John Newton. He says, a Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom. What does a mushroom do? You go out there and you mow the grass, it might pop up overnight. It just grows right back. He says the Christian is not like the mushroom, but instead rather like the oak, the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but in time becomes a deep-rooted tree. It takes a long time for a Christian to grow up, become mature, and bear fruit. What do we all want to be like, though? We all want to be like the mushroom spring up overnight and have everything that we need. But this is the normal rate of things. Maturity takes time. But here it seems that God is promising that there will come a time when he propels time and seasons forward at an increased rate. When God visits his people in fulfillment of these words, it seems that the Christian will actually spring up like the mushroom. What once took decades may only take months. Wisdom will be poured out in that time on babes in the faith, not just on gray hair. And so when he says here that the, the, um, the reaper is on the heels of the stuff that is being grown, that is what he is saying. Things are moving quickly during this time. But it isn't only that time is sped up in this day. There is a more abundant harvest that is coming forward. Those treading out the wine from this season keep going. They're still treading out the wine as the seed is being sown for the next harvest to come. Has any farmer ever had to do such a thing? Has any farmer of grapes been out there squishing the grapes underneath his toes when he says to himself, there is so much here to do. I've got to start planting next year's grapes. Or when it comes to corn or wheat or anything like that, are they out there with the sickle at the same time when they're planting their seed? It's as if there's no winter here at all. It all just runs together. And so what can we say is actually happening when these words are being fulfilled? In just one word, it is revival. That is what is taking place here in the book of Amos. An extraordinary season of God's grace. That's what he's describing here. We rightly celebrate, do we not, when we see the salvation of souls come in ones and twos. We celebrate that. We're thankful for when any person comes to know the Lord. We're told that when any single soul does that, there is a celebration by the angels in heaven and we celebrate with them. 
But here, the trickle of ones and twos becomes the flow of a hundredfold. Short seasons like this have broken in from time to time. God chooses on occasion to send forth showers of grace on a people where they haven't changed anything that they've really done. They didn't start a new program. They just kept doing the same old, same old that they'd always done before, preaching the gospel and praying and serving other people. And God has chosen to shower them with revival. Our country's beginning coincided with what was called the Great Awakenings, the first one and the second one. 1740s, the first one, right around 1800, the second one began. And in many ways, it shaped the first 200 years of our nation's ideology. In some ways, it was foundational for what this nation would become as a people. So many people were being saved at that time. There are some remarkable accounts out there about what took place in our land. These sporadic ingatherings of fruit to the Lord, it seems to me, are small blessings along the pages of history until the final great blessing comes, the one that Amos speaks about here. You know, last week from the book of Joel, we talked about the tremors or the birth pains that come as small judgments on earth as we expect a final great judgment to come on that last day. But here it's the opposite. There are sweet seasons of revival that are dotted on the timeline in various places and times in history before there will be a great blessing of revival that is poured out on the ethnic Israelites after all the, is, after all the Gentiles have been gathered in. That is what it seems to me is going on here. I think that what Paul describes in Romans chapter 11 leads to a conclusion like this. And again, I don't speak with certainty, but I do believe that this is the best conclusion to make from the evidence of Scripture. But notice also in the second half of verse 13 that in this harvest, the mountains, we are told, will drip sweet wine that runs down the sides of the hills. How many of you all have ever seen grapes growing up on top of mountains? I mean, maybe it happened somewhere, but I'm going to assume that nobody here has ever seen a great vineyard on top of a rocky mountain. But where have you seen wine being grown? One of the, one of the first places that I ever saw was when we came to visit Buffalo for the first time. So you're driving up the interstate through Erie and into, you know, this, into western New York. These things are everywhere. Vineyards are everywhere. Is there a mountain there? Is wine flowing down from mountains through that place? No, that is like a valley there. Flatland, close to the water. But Amos tells us that in a particular day and time, one that has been inaugurated by the first coming of Jesus Christ, that in that day, wine will flow from up on high. What can this mean? 
And it seems clear that God will bring forth fruit from unexpected places that starts with the Gentiles themselves. And so those first Jewish believers, those first Jewish believers who became Christians, they did not expect a flood of faith to come from outside of Israel during those early days. All these foreigners began to flood to a Jewish Messiah. These outsiders. It was an unexpected place to find belief in God who had always, in a way, belonged to the Hebrew nation. But now it is the opposite, is it not? I don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but I don't know how many people in this room have a Jewish heritage, came from ethnic Jews. I would say that it is actually very small, if any. And that's the way it is in the broader culture. The church is predominantly made up of Gentiles, is it not? That is normal today. And so if that was true then, that faith would come from unexpected places, where might we anticipate faith to spring up today? You know, logically, it would be from a place that we don't anticipate, right? The Jewish people are hardened to Christ. I would say more so now than any other people. Those who have been set outside for a time, they will be brought back in. But until that final gathering when the grapes are being tread and the wine is flowing fully down the hills, where might we see pockets of this happening around us? It will come in unexpected places. I would say probably from the greatest sinners that are the most hardened toward God. That is the place that you and I can expect to see faith spring up. And you might say, well, that may very well be the most well-known and famous people in our society, and that very well could be true. But more likely, it will just be a greater flood of the people that God is already saving at a trickle. I believe that the fulfillment of this in our day would be a tidal wave of addicts and prostitutes, the poor and the downtrodden, the insignificant, the unpopular, the awkward, and the weak. Unworthy sinners with little to no influence in the culture, all finding the narrow way into the kingdom. God will broaden the path for these people and stretch open the doorway. And they will have the scales fall from their eyes like you have when they see their sin and give praise to God for His Son who came to lay down His life for them. I believe that there will be times still to come, hopefully here in South Buffalo, where this will actually actually happen, that people right now who are far from God, 
and have heard the gospel even in times past and have been hardened toward it, all of a sudden will have a curiosity spring up inside of their hearts. They will begin to be softened to the words of God. And there will come a time, and maybe they don't know exactly when it is, when they cross over that threshold where they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not just in ones and twos where we will celebrate, but a full, great harvest of souls. That is what we as a people should be praying for, and that is what Amos is talking about here. That it will take an extraordinary work of God to bring this about. And from time to time, he blesses a people to be able to see it. This has not happened. I mean, maybe it's happened in fits and starts and and small places, but not on a large scale. This has not happened in our country in 160 years. And there is a deadness of soul here. There is a lethargy in this land towards spiritual things. And if we ever expect to see wonderful things take place in our country where faith springs up as on the mountaintops here and runs down the sides of the hills, it will require an extraordinary work of God's Spirit. But He has done it before, and our God can do it again. There are a lot of things that I would like to see in my life. Personally, there's some things, this is an individual with my family, my own life that I'd like to see take place in the years ahead. But if I could see one thing, like even for a month, it would be this. Because at times I get tired, I get cold, I feel slow, I feel weak. And I need the Spirit of God to show up with great power in my own life. And He is able. And there are a lot of people out there that are tired and slow and without faith and on their own and absolutely lost in a dark place. And our God is surely able. And so I take encouragement as I look at the book of Amos and see this promise here because God is saying this will happen at least at the very end. And every now and then we get little tremors along the way of that great revival that is still yet to come. I think that's just a good place to stop. And what I would like for us to do just as a church, as we do, is to genuinely pray that there will be a harvest of souls like here, that will spring up in unexpected places in rocky, hardened ground where stuff doesn't normally grow. Can we pray for that as a church? This is something that we've actually been talking about for about the last four years as a church. In various small gatherings that we have, we talk about revival and we read about the testimonies of people who have seen these things in times past. And that's that's what they say. We were talking a couple of weeks ago at one of our gatherings and one of the men who had witnessed the Second Great Awakening in 1800 said, when we came together as a group of churches, we realized and we compared our notes that for about 10 years, all sorts of churches were praying like this for a revival to happen in our land and it did. 
And so really what often happens in God's people and in his churches is that there is a love for the souls of men and an understanding that there are sinners out there who need to be saved, that if they were to die today, would spend an eternity in a very real hell under the judgment and wrath of God. But they love mankind and they want them to know their savior and know the forgiveness that they have experienced themselves. And so they get on their knees and they pray because they know that they can't save them, but their great God can. And so as a church, can we pray like that for a few minutes today? Maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing these things and you think, this sounds crazy. I've never heard any of this stuff before. Maybe this morning you need to be the one and somebody else, the two in our midst that hears that Jesus Christ came to save people like you. That God so loved the world that he really did send his son into it 2,000 years ago so that you would have faith to see and love him and find forgiveness for your own soul. You are a sinner who stands on the precipice of eternity, on the edge of a cliff. Death is before you. And we talked about our brother Rick Tober who died in faith. We want you to die in So will you trust in Jesus Christ today? Maybe you spend these few minutes praying that God would have mercy on your soul. But let me pray, and then we'll pray as a church for a few minutes before we close with praise to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the words of this book. We see here that there are sins of the nations that you surely see, and there is judgment to come that you delight to send out nobodies into the world to preach the message of Jesus Christ. And people surprisingly and in unexpected places are saved. We're seeing that in our midst in ones and twos, God. But you tell us that there will be periods of time that break in here and there where a flood of souls comes to know Jesus Christ. And as a church, we want to see that happen. We have a lot of desires for the future for ourselves as individuals and for our families. But God, I want to hopefully set all that aside for a while this morning and just see the main thing is that there is an eternity before us. And Jesus Christ and the gospel is the main thing. Your kingdom is the main thing, not ours. And so Lord, please grant souls to be saved here in this community that a revival would spring up in western New York that nobody can explain except for the fact that our God has done it. And you will bring praise to your name. May that be our heart this morning as we get on our faces before you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.